We're going to be reading verses 13 through uh, 18 through 17. Okay. And please stand to honor the reading of God's word. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. But if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Father God, as we prepare to study this text together as a church, Lord, open our understanding to the realities of your word. Father, we know that through the Holy Spirit, we are not sold under sin. Lord, we know that, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and we know that we live for your glory. So teach us what this text means. Open our understanding, and I pray that our fellowship would bring you glory, Lord. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You may be seated. Oh, there you go, Antonetta. Say that how many times fast? Romans uh, 7, 14, 15. Being able to uh, say that quickly, she challenged us to do that with our devotions. Um, remember the she sells seashells by the shining seashore, and Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers and all that stuff that she had us uh, saying in that devotional time. We come to this passage, and uh, there's some serious things that we have to consider. You know, when a, when a preacher prepares a message to proclaim to the people of God, there are a number of things that have to be considered, but there are two that are absolute priorities. Two things that must be always remembered if we're going to be preaching. First, that when the preacher steps into the pulpit, as I have done this morning, he steps in as a spokesperson for God. He has the divine authority that comes with a call to preach. Just as Paul would often begin his letters with Paul, the apostle, called to be an apostle. So the preacher must know that he is called to proclaim the living and powerful word of God. And that's a scary task. The Bible makes it quite clear that false prophets and false teachers are going to be held accountable before God for saying, thus saith the Lord, if the Lord has not said that. James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, he wrote 
Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We who preach know that one day we will stand before the judge of all the earth and that we will give an account for everything that we have said that God said. Thus saith the Lord. The second and related thought is that the preacher must be certain that what he is proclaiming is true to the text. It is what the text says. He cannot guess. He cannot teach what others have taught about that text. He cannot say, this is what our church teaches, or this is what our denomination believes. If he does not have the confidence that what he is teaching is truly what the passage teaches, he should not be proclaiming it. And that means that the preacher is responsible for studying the passage and seeking to know the mind of the Lord. He cannot rely on commentaries. He cannot rely on theological books. That does not mean that you don't use commentaries and you don't use theological books. Yes, for God has given the church 2,000 years of wise individuals, people who have searched the scriptures, who have studied the scriptures. And we stand today on the shoulders of those giants who have studied the word of God, been given wisdom and understanding of biblical truths. Nevertheless, the preacher will not answer to God for what he says based upon what they said. He will stand before God to give an account for what he says, thus saith the Lord. I share that with you because, as you know, the popular approach to Romans chapter 7 says that this is Paul speaking about his own spiritual struggle and that it is him using himself as an example for the struggle that all Christians endure. During the past three Sunday school lessons, the past three weeks of devotionals, and my past two sermons on this topic, we have sought to say this is not the Apostle Paul speaking about himself, nor is this about the struggle of the Christian life. I know that's not popular, but I will not be judged on that final day by what is popular. I will be judged by what I believe that the scripture teaches, not because I want to be different, but because I believe that the more popular view is actually a dangerous view and deadly for Christians to believe. For Romans 7 is not about the spiritual struggles of an individual with sin. Romans 7 is about trusting the law as the means 
by which you would stand right before God. And that is what Paul is concerned about. Believing that somehow through the law, you can please God. And that through the law, you will have sanctification and live rightly. Because if you use the law that way, you will die. Or as our theme states it, God's good law grows garbage. God's good law, it is good. It is righteous. It is holy. We saw last week in verse 12. But if you use God's law in any attempt to stand right before him, it will produce nothing but trash, garbage, and death in your life. That is what this chapter is about. That is what Paul wants us to see. Our grandson, Paulie, was born with an allergy to lecithin, which is uh, particularly an ingredient in eggs, but it's in other things as well. And quite often, after he first received the diagnosis that he had that allergy, uh, he would break out, and his parents would ask themselves, where was he? What did he eat? Maybe he was at his grandparents, or maybe he was at an aunt's house, or, or uh, maybe they'd gone to a restaurant. What had he eaten that caused this to happen to him so that he would break out in hives? Those providing foods or snacks, they might have thought that they were doing good for this young child. Here, let's give him a cookie. Let's give him this or that. But because of his allergy, sometimes they were bringing him harm. Well, the Apostle Paul is warning that though the law appears good, and it is good because God gave it, the law itself, by itself, will bring harm. Why? Well, notice that he says that the law awakened the evil of sin. The law awakened in the heart of an individual the evil of sin. Now, he doesn't just say it awakened sin. He stresses the fact that this is deeper than that. Verse 13 ends with these words. The law works so that sin might become sinful beyond measure. That's not the purpose of the law we saw last week, but that's what it accomplished. In other words, the law worked on the sinful human heart like miracle grow on a plant or fertilizer in a garden to cause things to grow faster and stronger. So notice, we need to understand how sinful sin really is. I stated earlier that there's this danger with the belief that somehow uh, this is Paul talking about his own spiritual life, or this is about the battle that a Christian has with sin. What is that danger? 
Well, one of the reasons is what we find here in this text. We have people that say, when they sin, I'm stuck in Romans 7. You know, I'm just stuck in Romans 7. Or, well, you know, Paul struggled with sin himself, so I'm kind of in good company when I sin. Well, what's that saying? It's saying that I don't believe that sin is that bad. I don't see sin as really horrible. It's, you know, it's something that everybody does, including the Apostle Paul. No big deal. But our text says, God forbid. Or, as the ESV puts it, by no means. Don't let anybody say that kind of thing. Now, what would happen if Polly was staying over at our house and I get up in the morning, it would be a miracle if this would happen, but I get up in the morning and I make him a dish of scrambled eggs. And Polly eats the scrambled eggs. And he starts breaking out in hives all over and he starts having difficulty breathing. And my daughter comes racing in and she says, what did you do? Oh, it's no big deal. I, you know, he got a, he, somebody gave him a cookie last week and he broke out in a few hives. What's the big deal? Well, after she got done punching me in the face, she would probably say something like, don't you realize how serious this is? He could have died. Which is exactly what Paul says about this text. It's exactly what he says in this passage about sin. He's talking to those who know the law and think that the law can be beneficial for people to follow. And Paul says, no way! By no means is this a good thing for you. Don't you realize how serious sin really is? If you try to follow the law as a means of being saved or sanctified, all that will happen is that sin will become more sinful and you will die. In the middle of verse 13, he puts it this way. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. God never wants a Christian to say, yeah, well, you know, I know I shouldn't, but. You know, I know this is probably not a good thing, but. I'm in Romans 7. But. Paul sinned. He struggled with sin. And I know Paul. Anyone who thinks that the law is helpful does not understand how sinful sin really is. But notice that we also need to understand how subtle sin really is. Remember how subtle the serpent was that came to Eve in the garden and deceived her? And what did he use to deceive her? The word of God. Did God say 
such and such and so and so. Use God's word. Paul has shown in this passage that sin will use the law as a means of exciting more sin in us. To bring out the sin in our heart, as verse 13 begins, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, through that law. And even the temptation of Jesus, we're familiar with that. What did Satan use to tempt Jesus? He used the word of God. He used the scriptures to try to get Jesus to sin. You see, the word of God is good. It is righteous. It is holy. But the heart is not. The heart without the power of the Holy Spirit in it is desperately wicked. And so all that the law does is awaken sin within us. It makes people think that they can fool God by somehow keeping the outward aspects of the law. Well, their heart remains committed to sin. So that God's good law ends up growing garbage instead of righteousness. You know, in mystery movies... It's quite often that the uh, bad guy will take a voice recording of somebody that the, the good guy cares about and will, in that, somehow uh, use that voice recording to get the good guy to come into a trap that's been set. And you know what? In those movies, it almost always works, doesn't it? You know? They get the good guy to come into the trap that's been set. But in the movies, the good guy always wins out anyway, or most of the times that he does. But that's not the way it is in life. Generally, sin wins out when it uses the law. It manipulates the mind so that the mind thinks that, that somehow it is doing good. While the heart itself without the Holy Spirit, does sin. But that's okay. Because Paul struggled with sin. So I struggled with sin. What difference does that really make? Does that sound familiar? Oh, we may not word it quite that blatantly, but that's what I hear I want you to notice in Romans 7, there is no room for the excuse for sin. Even though we as Christians know the evil of sin, so many of us try to use this passage as an excuse for our sin. I've heard multiple professing Christians make the excuse, as I said, well, I'm just caught in Romans 7. But you know how lame of an excuse that is? A non-Christian can say that and say it rightly. They could say, I'm caught in Romans 7. They never would say that, but they could say it if they're not a Christian. Paul tells us that that's what they could say in verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
Sin is, is in me and it is doing what sin does. It is sinning. What is that person saying? They're saying, excuse me, it's not really my fault. I can't help myself. And why can't they help themselves? Because what do you expect a sinner to do but sin? But do you expect a Christian to say such a thing? The Christian is not enslaved to sin. The Christian is not captured by it. The Christian cannot say, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells in me. So notice that we need to understand that when we're making excuses, there are none that we can make. We cannot blame Satan. Satan is not to blame for our sin. That's another common excuse, isn't it? The devil made me do it. Unless a person is demon-possessed, they really can't blame Satan for what they do in their lives. Verse 17 says, No, it is not Satan. It is sin. Sin that dwells in me. Sin is what is causing me to sin. Well, back in chapter 6, we heard the great news that as Christians we died to sin so that we will no longer live in it. Which means that the individual in chapter 7 has not experienced what Paul talked about in chapter 6. It cannot be the Apostle Paul as a Christian. It can't be any true believer, but it can be the person who is under the law. Look at verse 16. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Well, Satan would never agree to that anyway, so we can't use Satan as an excuse. Satan doesn't agree that the law is good. He despises God's law, but the person under the law would say such a thing. The person who's looking to the law to make themselves right before God would definitely think that the law is good and right and holy. And that's why the Pharisees loved memorizing 613 laws and all the things that went along with it. They agreed that the law was good. But the Apostle Paul, speaking to Peter in Galatians chapter 2, reminded Peter that when they were Jews, he and Peter were following the law. But the law did not help them. They could not, he says, we could not keep the law. That's exactly what he's saying here in Romans 7 as well. You cannot keep the law apart from the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Any person who does not have Christ's Spirit dwelling within them cannot not sin. That's what we see in Romans chapter 8 as well. The very nature is captured by sin. It is ruled by sin. Everything that they think, everything they say, everything that they do is tainted by sin. But that's not true of the Christian, is it? We saw in Romans chapter 6 that the Christian has a heart transplant. They have a new heart. It is a living heart. It lives for God. 
It has the law of God written on it and not on the external commands. That new heart has a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit to whom the person who finds themselves tempted by sin can turn to and say, empower me to live in righteousness and holiness. So in the end, notice that we need to understand that self is what made me do it. Not Satan, but self. You know, when we were studying Genesis, we defined sin with the three letters, S-I-N, standing for self-interest now. Self-interest now. Well, that's exactly what Paul says has gained control over the lives of the people under the law. No matter how many laws they memorize, no matter how hard they try to keep the outward aspects of that law in their heart, they were still motivated by self-interest now, by sin. And that's what Paul tells us in verse 14 is happening to these individuals. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but, I'm sold by, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Do you remember back in chapter 6, we talked about being sold, that slaves could be sold by different things, and that they, uh, in chapter 6, without Christ, they were sold as slaves to the law and therefore to sin, but that Christ had bought us, that God had, had taken us and gone to that slave trading uh, place and he had purchased us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ and he had taken us and set us free from that law of sin and death. But not only did he set us free, but then he took us into his family. And we talked about the fact that in that family, as he took us into the family, he caused us to be adopted. We were given the life of the family. It doesn't sound like verse 14, does it? We know that the law is spiritual. I'm of the flesh, sold under sin, sold to be slaves of sin. He doesn't say, now and then I falter, and I trip, and I fall into a mud puddle. No, he says, I'm caught in the pig pen, and that's where I live. No matter how hard I try to keep the good law, the person under the law says, it is a good law given to us by God to Moses. But no matter how hard I try, I cannot keep that law. Why? Because at the core of my being, I am a self-centered person. I want what I want when I want it. Human beings are babies that never grow up. Babies will let you know when they're hungry, when they need a diaper change, if they have colic, or if they're just plain spoiled. And they'll let you know by crying, by screaming, 
They let you know of those things, and they don't care what time of day it is. They don't care if it's 2 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning. They don't care if you're in the middle of taking a bath or a shower. They don't care where you are or what you are doing because all they care about is themselves. And that, my friend, is what Paul is saying about this individual. Without Christ, the human heart is self-focused. Even when attempting to do something good for someone, the Bible says the motives are wrong and are self-focused. Without the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit at work in the individual, those under the law remain self-focused. And in that way, God's good law grows nothing but garbage. Therefore, notice that the law provides the non-escape from sin. The non-escape from sin. Imagine being a Pharisee like Paul was. You spend your whole youthful years memorizing 613 laws, plus the Ten Commandments, a total of 623. Those of you who are trying to memorize Romans 8 realize that that is a rather difficult task. And yet they did it. They spent their lives learning all 613 laws plus the Ten Commandments. And all we're trying to do is learn 39 verses. Come on, guys. If they can do that, we can do this. Can you imagine memorizing 613 laws and what each of those laws meant? You memorize all those laws. You're taught that by keeping those laws, God is going to be pleased with you. If you do all of those things, then God will accept you. And so you memorize them. And you study them. But no matter how much you study, when you go to bed at night, you know that you haven't kept them all. Oh, you might have done the external, but down deep in your heart, you know that you haven't. You feel guilty at night. You feel what Paul says in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. No wonder we read then in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, we need to understand that sinfulness is the only thing that comes from the law. It will be the only result of an attempt to please God by doing what the law says. And that's the difference between the gospel and the law. You see, the law can only address the outward actions and words. The law cannot change the heart. On the other hand, the gospel not only reveals the depth of our sin, but it also shows us how to overcome that sin. It changes the desires of the heart. 
The law demands that you change yourself. The gospel promises God's power to help you bring about that change in your life. The law causes sinfulness to grow as people become more aware of the possibilities of sin. The gospel reveals the sinfulness of sin and the power of the Savior to forgive sin. The law gives commandments that increase the sinful desires already present within. The gospel breaks the power of sin and puts it to death. The law gives commandments that increase the sinful desires that are already there. But the gospel destroys the sin and uproots it, taking the weeds out of the garden of your life so that you might produce good fruit. In verse 13, we see that the law does just what Paul claims. Through the commandment, it might become sinful beyond measure. But that's not the gospel. The truth of the gospel, as Paul declared it in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That is the grand contrast between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Romans. In chapter 7, the law, like a parrot, can only repeat, You're guilty, guilty, guilty. But the gospel declares you're forgiven. And you're made whole, new. The law can show the sinfulness of your heart. The gospel can change the heart. Finally, notice that we need to understand that slavery comes with the law. We could come up with a new way from this passage to define sin. Instead of self-interest now, we could say slaves in nature. That those who do not have Christ are slaves in their nature. They will sin. They have to sin. In the first three chapters of the book of Romans, that's the argument that the Apostle Paul made. That no matter whether you are a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a barbarian or whether you're a Pharisee, it didn't matter. You're slaves in the nature to sin. And you must sin. You must rebel against God. It is the heart of every person without Christ within. Whether he's talking about the Gentiles who didn't have the law, but somehow had a law within them that accused them. Or whether it was the Jew who had the law, but could not keep the law. Every human being was a slave to sin. And he returned to that theme again in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, he talked about Adam. And how when Adam sinned, he brought sin into the world so that all sinned. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And now once again here in Romans 7, he returns to that theme. This time showing that even those 
who tried their hardest to keep the law. A law that was good and righteous and holy, given by God to the people through Moses, that they continually failed to be able to keep that law. Because the human heart is enslaved by nature to sin without Christ. So that we read in verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells, that lives, that is rooted in me. Now some people want you to believe that there's no escape from that slavery to sin, that the gospel doesn't allow you to escape from the slavery to sin. All the gospel does is give you forgiveness so that you can go off to heaven someday. They want you to think that the desperately wicked heart still controls those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that every night when you go to bed, you have to say how wicked I am, how horrible I am, how terrible I am, oh wretched man that I am. They want you to make excuses for living a sinful life. Well, I'm just in Romans 7. Well, the Apostle Paul, he was a sinner. He struggled with sin. So, I struggle with sin. That's just the way that it is in this world. But Paul's answer to that? Megenita. God forbid. By no means is this the excuse that any Christian should ever be able to make. I declare to you, my friends, with the Apostle Paul, that I preach Christ crucified for our sins, resurrected for our justification, living in us for our sanctification, so that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. We sing it in our songs, don't we? We sang some of those songs here this morning. We declare it in our creeds. We read it in our Bibles. We memorize it in our verses from Romans chapter 8. We are freed from the power of sin. So we turn around and say, let us sin so that grace may abound all the more. God forbid! How can those who die to sin still live in it? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means! But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. These are the truths that Christians declare. Not wretched man that I am, but... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are not merely a sinner saved by grace. You are a sanctified saint, the seed of the Christ in the heavenlies. Then live it. Walk in it. Or as Paul says elsewhere, walk Worthy of your calling. And so when we look at this chapter, we have a choice. We can look at this chapter and make excuses for our sin. We can look at this chapter and say, well, you know, that's the way Paul was. He struggled. And we can turn it from the purpose that Paul wanted us to see. 
and to understand and to know. And twist it so that it becomes an excuse for why we aren't living out our Christian life. And why we aren't putting to death the sin in our lives. Or we can believe the gospel. And we can believe that we are not caught and sold as a slave to sin. But that gospel is the power of God. Changes hearts. Changes lives. And be free. So that when we do sin, we do not lie in the muck of it and say, well, I'm just caught in Romans 7. But rather, we fall on our faces before God and we declare the truth of the Scripture. God, you have given the power of the Holy Spirit in my life so that I would not serve sin. Awaken that power within me. And let me live for your glory. Break this habit in my life. Destroy its power that Christ might be seen in me as a hope of glory. And the world will say, that's what I want to be. Let's not make excuses any longer. You may want to live in Romans 7. You may want to think that, well, you know, the law is there and all I am is condemned. Over and over again. But as we conclude this message today, do you really believe that you have to do something to make God love you? That you have to study a law and find that law as the means for living out that which will make God accept you. Do you believe you can do anything that's going to make him pay attention to you? The answer is no, you cannot. But God isn't asking you to do something. God is saying, I will do it in you. Come to me and be saved. Come to me and be freed. Come to me. Yield your life to me. And you will no longer live under the power of sin and darkness. We don't have to try to be good enough to go to heaven. If the Holy Spirit is in us, we already have that ticket. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit is a guarantee, God's guarantee, that we are already His. But you're not going to get to heaven living in Romans 7. You're not going to get to heaven making excuses for why the power of the gospel is not good enough, not powerful enough. For you to have a changed heart and a changed life. You see, God's good laws 
telling people, you should live this way, you should do this, you should do that. God's good laws are only going to grow garbage in your life. And that's not good. That stinks. But God's glorious spirit grows greatness in your life. And that's the promise of Romans chapter 8. The spirit alive in me. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit. Without Jesus Christ, we have no hope. Apart from his work in us, we are enslaved to sin. No matter how many laws we try to follow, no matter how many things that we try to do to somehow make it to heaven, somehow please you, it is absolutely impossible. And Lord, if it was impossible for the Jew who had those laws, then how much more impossible is it for us Gentiles who did not learn the 1613 uh, laws and, and try to follow them all of our lives? We stand condemned apart from Christ. But in Christ alone is hope. In Christ alone there is life And in Christ alone is the power of sin broken in us so that we can live in the Spirit and not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. Awaken us to that reality. Cause us to stop making excuses for why we don't live the gospel. Instead, by the Spirit of God, May the good greatness of your grace be evidenced as we yield ourselves, servants, to righteousness. A righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.